Okay. Good. Well, regulars here will know that um, for quite a time we were looking at our purpose statement. We've had some interruptions and some other things more recently, but that was quite a long series as we explored what we meant by living life Jesus' way, by his Spirit, on his mission for his glory. And I'm sure we'll come back to that, and we need to come back to that. Um, we need to be reminded of what our purpose is. So we'll be coming back to that. But um, we're going to start a- another series. I've no idea how long it's going to take, um, because we haven't mapped it out in advance, like in adv- what we often do. But I was just conscious of the fact that um, I don't tend to go into the Old Testament to preach. I just love the New Testament and the Gospel. Although I would make reference to the Old Testament, I don't. And I just thought, well, we, we, we ought to be looking at the, at the Old Testament. And um, so we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah, probably Nehemiah more than Ezra. And um, it has a particular relevance for the church anyway. I mean, all scripture has. And if you've got your um, touch paper, um, you'll know that at the top of it, um, there's a scripture there. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So by saying that I I sometimes find it hard to go start preaching in the Old Testament, I still value it and think that it's very important and God has given given that to, to us there. Uh, for a very special reason. And so, you know, we'll be looking at that. So we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's particularly important because of the title I've given there, Restoring of God's People. And um, God is committed to his people, right? And we've we expressed that in our worship this morning. David didn't know what I was going to preach on, but I just felt some things were really underlining uh, what I wanted to say this morning. And um, God is committed to his people. God is faithful and we can trust in him. We just sung that and that's absolutely right. And God may discipline his people. God may allow them to go into the wilderness, into the desert. But ultimately, God will have his purpose with his people. He will fulfil his promises to his people. He is committed uh, to us. And um, what we read in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah can have some parallels in the church. And so we'll be bringing that out um, in the coming weeks. Um, As I say, we haven't mapped it out and um, various people will preach and I'm really going to leave it entirely up to them what they preach on from from this period of of Israel's history. Um, So um, we'll see what comes out of it. But what I want to do this morning is just to give an overview and try and put it into context. Because it is important that we understand the context and maybe stories that we know very well. And uh, so that's, that's pretty important. And I think somebody even mentioned this morning that history is God's story. Okay? So even though history at times we may think is a bit boring, anybody love history at school? Oh, yeah, well, great, look at that, wonderful. Okay. But what we have to recognise is that all history, all history is God's story. And the people of God, the history of the people of God is something very special. And um, we've said at at times that we only know about God what he's chosen to reveal of himself. And one of the very special ways that he's revealed himself is through the Jews, through the people of Israel and his dealings with them. And so much of the Bible and the Old Testament is what we call narrative, it's story. But it's not story just to tell us history, it's to teach us about God and how God deals with people. And overall that we're going to look at this morning, um, I, I want us to be thinking about the faithfulness of God this morning. 
the faithfulness of God. And incidentally, of course, um, Julian has recently um, brought to us teaching about the word of God and how important that is and God's faithfulness too. And we'll pick up on that a little bit, bit later. So God is faithful. And uh, even though the Jews went through a terrible period, the message is God did not abandon his people. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father God, we thank you that your word is always the seed. Father, our hearts are the soil, as we were reminded a little while ago. Father, will you give us good soil? Lord, may our hearts be good soil. Um, Lord, let us be able to, as it were, distinguish the the, the hard facts from, uh, Lord, the things you want to impress on us. And Father, that, that, Lord, there'll be fruit uh, from what we hear today as your word uh, is read and preached. Father, help us, please, in Jesus' name. Well, your first heading there is um, from glory to decline to captivity to restoration. If you turn your paper round uh, 90 degrees anti-clockwise, you should be looking at a chart, okay? Yeah. We spare no expense here, okay? No expense regarding these things, okay? And um, it's headed Ezra and Nehemiah because that's the focus of our preaching in a few weeks, but it covers a much bigger period. And um, I'll I'll only just uh, kind of mention it here just to explain it. Um, Just under the title there, you've got uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon and so on. And they are the kings there of Babylon. And then uh, the nation that overran Babylon and became another... um, uh, What's the word? Not a nation, a empire. Sorry, lost the word. Another empire um, was the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persians. Uh, so that's the detail there of the kings. Just below that, um, we have some the prophets of the, New, uh, the Old Testament um, that comment on these periods, who lived through them. Uh, we've got Ezekiel and Daniel that were away there in captivity, in that period of captivity, and, uh, and Jeremiah, of course. And then you've got the solid block, um, the, the, the length of the block is not, um, uh, is not to scale, all right? but just take a note. I don't know about you, but I find it difficult sometimes to get my head round BC. I kind of keep working it back and it doesn't seem to work. But, but anyway, that's what we're looking at. These are dates BC. And we start with the United Kingdom under David. This was a, a, a heyday, as it were, of the, the, the nation's history under David which was then passed on, this wonderful kingdom was passed on to Solomon. But because of Solomon's sin, the the nation was divided. Much of uh, the nation was torn away from Solomon uh, and became Israel in the north with its capital Samaria. And in the south, um, Judah, this one tribe left, and the capital um, was Jerusalem. Uh, And then we find that uh, uh, in due time, the Assyrians overran northern Israel in 723, BC, and they were carted off to exile. That was the Assyrians there, not shown on the chart. And then a little bit later, well, 137 years later, there's the fall of Jerusalem, um, where um, Nebuchadnezzar, having besieged the city, overran it and killed lots of people and then took many off uh, into exile. And then we've got the period of restoration. Um, the first wave of Jews that came back uh, from Persia uh, under Zerubbabel, um, I love that name. It kind of run, runs off your tongue or your lips, doesn't it? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, yeah. And he leads the first wave of Jews back to Jerusalem. And a bit later, 
We have Ezra, who leads the second wave, and then Nehemiah, who goes to rebuild the wall. So that's, that's just the chart, and we'll, we'll obviously make reference to it as we go, but that's just by way of explanation. Of course, just beyond there, we've got um, Malachi, who's the last prophet in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and from then on, no prophets. About 400 years, and there's nothing from heaven, no word from heaven, until Jesus comes on the scene. And, uh, and then that mighty revelation of God. So from glory to decline to captivity to restoration. And the overall message is, in spite of how black and how dark everything was, God was in control and he had not abandoned his people. So the first phase then, from David and Solomon to captivity. I don't spend too much time on that because that's not a focus. But you remember that David... Um, united the, the nation. He subdued their enemies. Uh, and people loved David. They followed David. And um, there was a real highlight in the nation was the worship in the tabernacle. And very often when we want to know about some expressions of worship, we go, we go back to 1 and 2 Chronicles and we, we, look, we look there and we find what glorious worship there was in the tabernacle. But eventually David uh, takes the ark into Jerusalem and desires to build a, a, a temple for God. He wants a permanent house for God. But God says, you're not going to do it. I, I love your heart, but you're not going to do it because you're a man of blood, you're a man of war, but your son will do it. Solomon will, will, will build uh, the temple. And, and, and that's what happened. And Solomon inherited uh, not just the, the, the act of building the temple, but a glorious kingdom um, that surpassed all others at that time. But what we find is that Solomon's sin um, in fact characterised uh, the decline, uh, later decline of the nation. And if you like, what we're going to do, I'm going to read quite a lot of scripture this morning. You can either follow it um, or uh, you can um, uh, just listen as we go because there's quite a lot. So, so if you want to look, you can look up that first reference to, at um, 1 Kings 11, 1 to 13. The page I've got open, if you look back, you can see the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon. What wonderful splendour. She is amazed at his wisdom and his wealth and his might and power and so on. She said, there's no one like you. And then wonderful list there of of the splendour of Solomon. But here we see his downfall, chapter 11 and verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from the nation about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love and he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Um, Makes your eyes water, doesn't it, that? And his wives led him astray. (laughs) Didn't seem much leading, did he, really? As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. As the heart of David his father had been, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, 
the detestable God of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable God of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifice to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods. Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, yet I will not tear out the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe, that's Judah, for the sake of David my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And you'll notice I've got in brackets there, this is still the problem that Ezra is confronting um, 500 years later, and that is intermarrying with the peoples around. And it isn't so much... that God is racist or there's some immorality about it but it's the fact that God knew that these other people who had their own gods would lead the Jews astray and so God forbade them to intermarry and of course Solomon got into that big time and we see what happened. So soon after Solomon's death the kingdom was divided and we've now got two kingdoms, one in the north, one in the south And um, with some notable exceptions, the kings of Israel and and Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow his ways. If you're familiar with uh, Kings and and Chronicles, um, you'll you'll know that the the story goes from north to south and backwards and forwards and covers different periods and you're never quite sure which, which one you're looking at unless you look at it quite closely. But this is a very sad history. And a notable example of the, how they'd gone astray. If you look at 2 Kings 21, 1 to 9, this King Manasseh, or Manasseh. Verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hepzibah. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before Israel. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made the Ashtoreth pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry host and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry host. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved asterisk pole he had made and put it in the temple of, of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their forefathers, if only they will be careful to do everything I have commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. There, there is the, you know, the depth to which they'd gone. They did more evil than the people of God. What, what an indictment on them. Terrible indictment. 
And um, so we find that, uh, as I mentioned when we looked at the chart, that, that Israel in the north was taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 723 BC. And then in 137 years later, uh, Jerusalem, uh, that's in Judah, fell to the Babylonians in 586 BC. And it was part of God's sovereign purpose. You can say... You know, God had had enough that something drastic had to be done uh, to bring these people back to himself. Some severe discipline had to take place. And this was God's sovereign purpose. So if you look at two, keep going in the same direction, two chronicles for chapter 36. This is about the fall of Jerusalem, but it gives you an idea of, of how God felt about things and how God had, had remonstrated with the people through the prophets, but they would not listen. This is now verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent words to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young men nor young women uh, nor the aged. God handed over uh, all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God. That's a point just to underline and remember that. He took all the articles from the temple, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the kings and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the places and destroyed everything of value that was there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Uh, and they uh, enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the time of its desolation it rested until 70 years were completed in fulfilment of the word of the Lord spoken to the prophet. That is significant. God had their restoration in mind when he was uh, disciplining them and it's very important. Jeremiah prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and the taking of the people into exile in Babylon but also their restoration. Now you've got to go a little bit further in your Bible to find Jeremiah after Isaiah. Jeremiah 29. You will recognise this passage if you didn't recognise um, the, the reference. And it's one that Christians take for themselves very much. Uh, verse 10, like Jeremiah 29. Remember, Babylon is, sorry, uh, Israel is under siege. The, the, Jerusalem is under siege by the Babylonians. Uh, everything looks really black. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. This is a verse you will know. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. 
You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God's glorious promise. Of course, it was dependent on the people repenting. But nevertheless, that was God's glorious promise. And um, I've just made a note there in your notes, that, uh, confident that God will fulfil his promise, Jeremiah buys a field. You know that story? You know, he, he's there in the land, he's facing possible deportation himself, although I don't think Jeremiah was deported. But, uh, you know, Jerusalem was falling. The enemies were all around. But confident in God's word, Jeremiah goes and buys a field because he knows that in due time, um, then those, those fields uh, would be farmed and there would be prosperity again in the land. And it was a mark of, of his trust in God. And there are times when we have to invest in God's future um, even when the present looks pretty black right? because God has promised that we're, st- we're still investing in God's, p- God's future even when the, there are difficulties that we face. Now we come to the period of restoration. And I've just sh- shown really as, as phase two. Phase one was the from David to Solomon into captivity, a period of decline. Now God puts his plan into being uh, to restore his people. I, don't, I think there was something like 50,000 people um, in captivity by this time in Babylon. I think it was only 5,000 went initially, but um, over the years they multiplied just as they had done uh, in Egypt. So there's quite a lot of people to ultimately come back. And just a question here, how was it that after 70 years of captivity, the king at Cyrus um, willingly let the Jews return to Jerusalem and even assisted them? If you think about Pharaoh and the time when the Jews were in captivity in Egypt, Pharaoh did not want to let his workforce go, did he? And he resisted it time and time again. These people were an economic necessity to him. They were his workforce. And that would be true probably of the people, many of the people who were there in Babylon and eventually became Persia. They, they would have been slaves and servants to the people there and they wouldn't naturally have wanted to let them go. But I've given you two reasons why um, they cooperated, why the kings cooperated. God is sovereign. You know, it is God who moved the heart. So let's look at Ezra. Let's, you're very close to that if you looked at that. That passage, Ezra chapter 1. We're not going to read um, all of this, just a few verses. In the first year of, of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout uh, his realm and to put it in writing. Remember what Jeremiah said? It will be 70 years, but after 70 years, God will bring you back. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem and the people of any place where survivors may now be living, are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So it's God who moved 
the heart of this man. God moves a heathen. God can use whoever he wants to. God can use anybody uh, to serve his purpose. So it's because God is sovereign. Remember I said, just take a note about the fact that they ransacked the temple, um, that's the Babylonians, and they took all the treasures uh, into, ba- into Babylon. Okay? That was part of God's provision, I believe, because now uh, all these treasures were now going back to Jerusalem and they'd been stored uh, in a temple of one of the heathen gods there. They'd been preserved and now they were being taken back. Now, if they'd been left in Jerusalem with the, 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 the temple and burned and ransacked and the, and the walls down, what would have happened? They would have been looted and they would have been lost. But God preserved them by them being taken away into Babylon. And now you'll see on verse, at verse 7, Moreover, King Cyrus brought out all the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem uh, and placed them in the temple of his God. Right, that's what Nebuchadnezzar had done. But now Cyrus was bringing them out and they were all getting returned. But my second point here as to why did the king allow this and why did he cooperate, the Persian kings were polytheistic. It doesn't mean they worship parrots. You might have thought that, but it isn't, no. They they worship many gods. And it didn't matter how many gods you have, nobody was jealous of your god or somebody else's god, and they just make sure that all the gods were happy. As long as all the gods were happy, everything was going to be fine and his kingdom was going to be maintained and strengthened. So he wanted to placate the gods, uh, all the gods. And if you can just understand that mindset, it, the, the, the Persian Empire was, it was a gathering of many, many nations uh, and they all had their own gods. And so the king said, if we keep all the gods happy, we're fine. We're doing okay. And he realised, of course, that the Jews were very religious people and he knew that they had um, their, their religious centre, as it were, in Jerusalem. And so he said, we better make sure this God is happy. What do they call him? The God of heaven. Yeah, we better make sure the God of heaven is happy. And so this is how God um, used these kings uh, to um, cause the Jews to go back and for worship uh, to be restored. So the first uh, restoration really takes on three three major themes. And the first is the rebuilding of the temple. Remember that, 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 um, that Cyrus was concerned that worship should begin, that God should be placated as he saw it. So that was the priority. And we, we find the supreme importance of worship. I'm sure the people going back felt the same. It wasn't just that the king wanted worship to, to re, um, re rekindled there but it was the people themselves also. So Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and Yeshua, the priest, sometimes called Joshua, we'll read him called Joshua somewhere else, um, initiate the building of the altar to re-establish the sacrifices and then the rebuilding of the temple. And uh, you know, when, when they laid the foundations of the temple, there was tremendous rejoicing. You can read about that in the story there. There was such celebration and rejoicing you know, worship was going to be re-established again. They'd already built the altar so sacrifices could be made, but we're going to have the temple again. And the people were very enthusiastic and they brought all their gifts and wonderful things for the building of this temple. But there was opposition. There was opposition from the people in the surrounding area, some of the governors and so on. They started to oppose the people. And they even, as it were, told tales to the king back in Persia. 
and said, do you think, you do realise that these Jews are building their temple so they can rebel against you? And for a season, um, the building of the temple stopped. People were discouraged um, by the, the physical opposition. Um, I think there was some famine and that sort of thing at the time and they started to begin to look to their own needs, building their own houses and so on. And God had to intervene through the prophets. And um, if we look at Ezra 5, in the first couple of verses, we see these two prophets now who were the encouragers, Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, and they were God's encouragers. When we think about prophets, many of the Old Testament prophets, like, um, I suppose, Jeremiah, were telling the future, or foretelling what was to happen, warning the people. These prophets were encouraging. And I think this is a very important role for prophets, particularly in our day and age, that prophets in the church often help people, the people of God, get back on track. You know, God speaks to people, they start to do something, and then they get discouraged, and the prophets come along and say, come on, this is the vision God's given you. Look up. You know, God is with you. and God will help you. Keep going. And this is what these two prophets did. So now Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the prophet uh, a descendant of Ido prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem and the, prophet, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So a very vital role in a, a restoration and building process is the word of the prophet. And the people were motivated by the vision of even greater glory. Let's look at Haggai, um, or Haggai, however you want to pronounce it, chapter 2. That's, you're now going, getting towards the, uh, the, the end of um, the Old Testament, just before Zechariah. Just the first nine verses. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? I'm sure this is what the people were saying. You know, we remember Solomon's temple. How wonderful it was, the glory of it. Uh, this is never going to be like that. We've not made any progress. It's never going to be like that. So he's asking the question, does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. And the work... Sorry, and the work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty said. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and the desired of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So, and you know, very often the people of God in more recent times have, have been um, discouraged 
they've looked at the church and thought, I, you know, I can remember the church, you know, back 40 years and how wonderful it was and the wonderful things that we did and it just doesn't seem to be like that. But the word of God says that the future house is going to be more glorious. That one day God is going to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. We're all being prepared to be the bride of Christ and that's going to be a glorious time. Now we could dwell on that a long time but I don't want to do that but there is that parallel between the church. There are times when we do become discouraged, times of decline, but they're so important. And of course for the church it's very important that um, when we seek to restore things that may be lost, that worship is the priority. Eventually the temple was completed and dedicated with great sacrificing and establishing of the priestly offices according to the law. Nevertheless, the people were largely ignorant of God's laws. If you turn over... So they're worshipping, but they don't know how to live. They're worshipping God. They've reinstated the sacrifices. Um, They're rebuilding the temple, but they don't know how to live. So the next section regarding restoration is the centrality of the law. Behaviour must be compatible with worship. And we've said that very often, haven't we? God says to us through Paul, present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is worship which is acceptable to God. It's our lifestyle that's part of our worship. And these people did not know how to live. So Ezra, the priest, is sponsored by King Artaxerxes. He's now on the throne to take more exiles to Jerusalem and to spare no expense in ensuring proper worship takes place and to teach God's laws. I don't think Artaxerxes was concerned about the laws of God, the moral laws of God. But what he was concerned about was law and order in this part of his province. Okay? And so he thought, well, this man is well versed in the law, we'll send him back and they're not only building the temple and he makes reference to that and the sacrifices, but we'll have law and order as well. So if you can now go back to Ezra, I should have said keep your thumb in Ezra, shouldn't I? And, uh, and look at chapter 7. Verses 21 to 26. There's quite a gap, you know, um, between um, the the first wave of Jews um, under Zerubbabel and then those that went back with Ezra. Ezra is a a priest and well-versed in the law. Now I, King Artaxerxes, order all the treasures of trans-Euphrates to provide treasurers, sorry, of trans-Euphrates, to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of of the God of heaven, may ask you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? See that point? He's concerned about his kingdom and he's concerned that this God that the Jews worship um, doesn't fall on him. All right? So he wants to, he wants to please him. Let's, let's please this God. You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants or any other workers at this house, at this house of God. And you, Ezra in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. 
whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death. Banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. Interesting, isn't it? The heathen is going, saying to Ezra, you go and teach the people your laws. You don't often get that kind of support, do you? We often get ridicule about the Bible and the laws of God, saying they're out of date. But this, this king was watching his own back and uh, this is why um, he goes into this uh, kind of mode and, 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 uh, and gives them that facility. So Ezra goes and he teaches, he reads from the law of God. It's at the water gate. Many, the city had many gates at which we'll discover as we go through Nehemiah. And at the water gate, he reads the word of God. The people come under conviction uh, and they confess their sins and uh, particularly the sin of intermarrying with foreigners. You remember I said that this sin of, of Solomon um, actually characterised... Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to mention how many, how many foreign wives and, and, and how many porcupines he had. Oh, no, it's concubines, wasn't it? That's right. Okay. But... But the sin was not so much the, the, the immorality of having all those wives. It's that those wives led Solomon away from worshipping God. And that's why God makes this, this rule okay, regarding intermarrying. It's because uh, people will want to please their wives and they will want uh, to please them regarding the, the worship of idols. And so, um, as, as I say... Um, that, that um, confession of sin follows that and particularly that of, of intermarrying with foreigners. And now we get, if you like, the, the, the last phase which is the rebuilding of the city walls. Um, and I think um, in general terms for the people um, it stood for um, securing identity and community. It, it was to help them become a, a community and a people again. Now, notwithstanding all that the Jews had accomplished in their return to Jerusalem, that is, um, rebuilding the altar, uh, the temple, the worship was restored, the word of God became central again. Um, But Nehemiah, one of Artaxerxes' officials, he was a cupbearer to the king, when he heard that the walls were broken down, he became very, very distressed. Uh, You can look at that at the beginning of um, Nehemiah, if you like. We're We're nearly at the end of for today, but... Chapter 1 of Nehemiah. There's a lovely prayer here which um, somebody might want to pick up on. But, but Nehemiah becomes distressed when he hears. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakiliah, uh, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, that's in Persia, Hanani, one of our brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, sorry, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And uh, it says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And if you know the story, you know that he looked pretty mournful, maybe deliberately, 
And the king asked why he was sad and he told him why. And amazingly again, the king gave him facility to go and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Whether it was for the same reason that we've already noted, that the king said, I've got to keep in with these Jews and their worship, I don't know. But that's what he got him to do. And so Nehemiah returned with some more people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He, of course, he went to inspect it first and then organise it. And that's part of the wonderful story that we have in Nehemiah of how Nehemiah took charge of this rebuilding work. So just to sum up then, just for today, it is an overview, all right? There's much I could have said and, uh, and, and the like, but some of that I hope will come out later. But the priorities of worship, word and walls uh, for God's people in all ages and can be applied to the church. Um, we pick up some of that in cell, don't we? Worship and word and maybe some of the other uh, parts also uh, are can be in, you know, incorporated into what we might call walls. But these were the priorities. And um, many of us have lived through a, a period of history of the church where we've seen restoration. If we go back about 40 years, say, um, many uh, were experiencing the Holy Spirit in new ways, being baptised in the Spirit, finding personal renewal in the Holy Spirit. And um, one of the things that first got affected was worship. People wanted a greater freedom in worship. Uh, they wanted to sing new songs that God was giving them. And they found opposition to that. Um, many people wanted to hold on to the old traditions. And there were what people often called worship wars, um, sadly. But we've come through that period, I, I trust now. And although there is facility for people who want to hold on to old um, modes of worship, generally speaking, there's a much greater freedom uh, in worship uh, these days. And um, so we've seen that. But there's also been a concern in some quarters that we just don't only have personal renewal and a, and a renewal of worship, but that the church is restored, that there's restoration in the church. And if, if you can go back that far, Terry Virgo wrote a, uh, a book called that, Restoration in the Church, about how uh, the way we live together in church, the structures, uh, the values, how they need to change in order to fully receive this spirit that has now come to the church, this Holy Spirit now renewing people, restoration in the church. And I think probably all that that involves is probably what we would call walls. It's all what the walls are about, you know, how we are as a community. But we're going to be looking at that, I trust, in the, in the weeks to come. But I think we can easily identify with the worship and the word. Yes, they're our priorities, but what about the walls? How, how are we going to interpret that uh, in the coming days? So wh wh what's, the, what's your overall impression of this? that's going on here. I trust that it's a follow-on from our worship, that God is sovereign, that God is committed to his people. God called Abraham and said that you, your, your family will become a great nation and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. When you look at the history of the Jews from then, it's up and down, up and down all the time. But God is faithful because God is the God of history uh, and, uh, and God will fulfil his purposes. If you look over the history of the church, there's been some very, very dry and dark periods in the church. We, people will have said the light has almost gone out, but God has come by his spirit and revived his people and God will accomplish his purposes. And as we look through this, I trust that we'll be picking up 
um, from time to time more of this aspect of how God is faithful, God will fulfil his purposes in his people, even though um, they may be wayward, even though God may have to allow them a, a wilderness period from time to time in order to get them hungry and thirsty again for him, in order that maybe some discipline may have to take place, but God will have a people for himself who love him, who worship him and fulfil his purposes. So there's some questions if you want to look at those in cell this week. Really, I'm just asking some questions about what we've already considered. But I hope you just don't see that as a bit, a bit of dry history, but it's God's story and we need to know God's story because it's a continuing story and we're part of it. We have been placed central in God's story because we're placed into Christ and history is all about him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, thank you so much that, Lord, you just didn't give us a book of dry laws, the do's and don'ts. But, Lord, we see you're working in real people, people who are fallible like us, people who sin like us, people who wander from you like us. Lord, people who run after idols at times, just like us. And, Lord, thank you that we can see your faithfulness. And, Lord, as we... We face the ups and downs of life and even the ups and downs of church life. Lord, will you, by your spirit, impress on us. Bring us prophets to encourage us again and again that we can press on in this glorious kingdom and see the reign of Jesus increase more and more because the government is upon his shoulders and the increase of his government will know no end. Father, encourage us, we pray, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.